If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go! Welcome, everyone. Today's show continues our visual data disasters theme with a look behind the curtain at the people and processes that feed the creation of a full-scale visual data disaster. To help us get the inside scoop on this complicated topic is Felix Schildorfer. Felix is the principal data scientist at First Retail. Felix, welcome to the show. Thanks lots for having me, Allison. Tell us a little bit more about your background and, you know, how did you end up in visual data in the first place? Because I know, like me, I, you know, I didn't study this in school. How did you end up here? So um, my background is a bit complicated, so I'll try to summarize it as best as I can. I'm currently living and working in Vienna, Austria, which is also where mm. I grew up and went to high school. I was always a very big guy. Currently, I'm about 6'4", 230, but I've been up to 290 before. And a pretty good football player. And with football, I actually mean American So football. you're not the typical, like, you know, visualize a data scientist with nerdy glasses and, you know, little guy in a cubicle, are you? Oh, no, no. I, I can... I can, uh, lots of people tend to be very surprised when I walk into a meeting. I can bench two nerds, uh, one in each arm. <laughs> Basically, and I am a nerd, so um, tend to catch a lot of people off guard. I was pretty good at American football, and I knew that, and I knew I wanted to play college football. So after a lot of work and a lot of backstory I don't need to get into, I actually got recruited by the University of Pennsylvania. There I graduated with a double major in mathematics and oh, economics and a minor in statistics. So you can imagine there's a lot of visualization mm-hmm. in economics and statistics already. So that's kind of where it all mm-hmm. got started. Mm-hmm. I then went on to back to Europe to gain more experience in the field. And um, that's how I kind of started working at different uh, data science projects and then later on kind of end-to-end data visualizations as well I'm going to talk about later. Um, but actually, I'm already preparing to move back to Silicon Valley this fall, so that's really yes, exciting. Yes, we will love having you here on the West Coast, for sure. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the work you specifically do as a data scientist? I think most people who listen to the show understand data science, but there's such a broad definition of the you know, within the work that people do as data scientists. What do you specifically do? Sure. Um, I have done 
data science work. I've worked in banking, insurance, and currently I'm in healthcare. Um, but I'm not sure that everybody would agree that my most recent work is strictly data science, but I feel like it it's included in the general sphere. So most of my recent projects have to do with data architecture and data visualizations. Um, to be more specific, most of my current projects are, are what we would call an end-to-end -end project, meaning my responsibility starts with going to the end user, see what kind of data product he wants, and then going all the way back to the data source and seeing what's available and what should be available and what can't be done. And then most of my work is actually building up the entire infrastructure and processes that enable to go enable the data to travel from the data source to the end user and then kind of appear in front of the end user in the most um, in the most useful kind mm -hmm. of form mm -hmm. and kind of create a functional end product that the customer can be now it's and, and just for the the listeners of the show we oftentimes talk about customer equity and um, getting that information about your customers to be surfaced inside the organization. And so the reason I invited you, Felix, to the show particularly is because with that end-to-end -end project uh, with that end-to-end -end project capability, what you're actually doing is stepping on one of the most important features that I hear from chief analytics officers, which is you've got to be able to communicate the wins that you have around the customer. And, and data visualization is a big element of that. We oftentimes think that you can pull all this information together and it just kind of happens, but it's a lot like a garden in that what you plant is what you get on the other side. And so for the listeners of this show, I, I really thought it was interesting how you you really can build success or failure out of those those initial pieces that are planted in the the data visualization seeds and and maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that as far as why why a visual data disaster needs a little bit more planning. Um, you know, why is it important to care about this this earlier uh, creation of the disaster? Because hey, you know, it's it's all. It seems like you can just get to visualization if you just have the data. And I think most people say, oh, I've got the data. I can just slam it together. Um, why is the end to end prospect so important and why are the seeds that go into it so challenging? So I think data visualization is a very hard and very real problem, especially for really large complex organizations, especially if they have a long history and a lot of legacy infrastructure. It can be incredibly hard to gain those really valuable insights of all of the data Isn't that, that the is truth? produced. And often enough, companies are flush with data. They don't know what to do with it. Um, but it's not as useful as, the, as they often think, and they blame this on the general attitude towards data that we used to have. We used to store data to remember it, not to gain insights out, out of it. 
nowadays everyone wants these insights. Everybody sees other people doing it. But unfortunately, most organizations, the entire data infrastructure was built with a completely different goal in Felix, mind. Felix, that is a really interesting uh, insight. I don't think I've ever heard anybody put it that way. And it's it's incredibly important. You know, the way we structured it initially is what we expect to get out of it. Nobody expected to get insights out of large legacy systems, perhaps. Exactly. And uh, personal management might hear a lot about the more modern uses of data and naturally would want to be a part of it. Um, they don't want to use all of the data that they know they have to gain extra value in their business. And the first logical step is, of course, to look at it. And that's when they already start to realize that, well, it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people tend to be very surprised by how much work goes into, work goes into creating and displaying valuable insights. Now, I, I know we have a great story to tell today about this um, creation of a data disaster based on how much work goes in. So let's dive into this example and the story that you personally experienced uh, in, in trying to create this end-to-end data visualization for a company. Okay, yeah. So the story I'm going to tell you about is um, my project at a large organization of hospitals somewhere Which will in remain Europe. nameless. Uh, <laughs> yes. They were under a lot of pressure to reduce their spending, and I'm talking about media, politics. There was really a lot going on there. And they were constantly looking for better ways to do so. My initial assignment started with start directed to central agency, which wanted to use data visualizations to make better decisions. They wanted to start with five areas, free medical, surgeries, radiology, and patient care, and two administrative, general financials and cleaning personnel. So I arrived at this project and we were initially told we would get uh, our own SQL database in their general environment with data available where we'll be able to work, do data transformations, load in more data, and kind of create a proof of concept. Perfect strategy. Uh, Yeah. Uh, At the moment of this recording, this has been over a year ago, and we still have not gotten the environment as we were promised Mm. back then. There's something, but just nothing that we can use as we wanted to. Um, So go back to about a year ago um, and as we were starting in the first weeks of this project as we were waiting for this environment um, we just kind of didn't want to sit around idly and we wanted to create the dashboards Mm -hmm. ahead of time that of course is a lot of work because we had to find the correct KPIs, transform the, and process the little data that we had. So, uh, wait, are you are you basically going on a bring me a rock kind of mission? You know, where the company says, "I know there's something interesting in the data. Can you bring me a rock? No, not that rock. I want this rock." And you're kind of iterating on what you think they want. Yes, exactly. Um, so, what the, the company really wanted was for us to show them how to best use their data. Unfortunately, they didn't really give us much data to start with. So we kind of started to explore what could be valuable for them. And we started to create data to kind of show these insights. Mm -hmm. So 
creating dashboards and data visualizations can be incredibly easy if you have clean data readily available. <laughs> it is very, very hard work to write data by hand to produce quality visualizations that are not only realistic, but also useful, that you can use as a proof of mm -hmm. concept. And we needed to do that in order to show what could be done with so real So you needed data. to set the vision. Uh, in order to get the momentum yeah. internally, you, you had to build different mock data sets? You, you had to create the data? Or, or were you actually able to get the yes. data through? So we had some old data from prior mm -hmm. projects, um, which we used, and we had... Uh, and but the rest of the data we had to just kind of write mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. So so you try to get the visualization together of here's what it could be, here's what it might look like, uh, and, and that. Mm -hmm. What did you do with that once you had it? Um, then once we've created these dashboards and still no SQL environment available at this point, we go to the decision makers and we tell them, like, here's this proof of concept. We've worked really hard on it. Please just let us, act. Let us get to the actual data and we'll make it a reality for you. And they absolutely loved it. I don't know if you've ever seen Power BI um, mm -hmm. and it's really quite impressive, especially if you compare it to legacy systems such as just Excel or what they were using at the company was IBM mm -hmm, Cognos. Mm -hmm. So the decision makers actually loved it. And so they said, go ahead, just uh, work with IT and they'll give you what you need. And at this point, we just hit a wall. <laughs> Wait, we you're working speed. with IT and you hit a wall. I've never heard that before. <laughs> yes. So IT says they already have all of this because they do have IBM Cognos and they do have dashboards there. They're wondering why are they taking responsibilities away from us? Why are they trying to give us extra responsibilities we won't be paid for? Um, and the, kind we, the way we kind of worked around this thing is like, well, we see you have your dashboards and you're doing these certain things. Our dashboards are going to do different things. So we're not actually in any kind of... Uh, Competition. Sure. And and I think we've all been in that situation, whether it's with internal partners or whether it's as an external vendor, where somebody perceives you as competition when you're actually partners. Yes. So after a little bit of back and forth, we kind of get IT to maybe not be on our side, but at least mm -hmm. support us. Um, and then we kind of start to realize to why they were so um, hesitant in the beginning. Namely, a lot of the data that we wanted, they didn't really have access to as well. <laughs> now, this is kind of where it gets But really they didn't want to tell you maybe, that they didn't have access. I, I think so. Or they maybe just didn't want to think about it because it meant <laughs> extra work for them. Um, the, the problem is, is that the hospital generates a lot of data and the data is stored in a central data warehouse for them. That's 14 different hospitals, lots of different systems and it's all stored in the same location but not in a unified way. 
it's stored in the same location, but it's not all put together in a central so database. talk a little bit for a second about um, what that means, the, because I think there is an assumption that if I slam everything together into an Amazon S3 bucket, that all of a sudden I've got what I need in order to visualize data. So there are a lot of different, different hospitals which kind of send in their data and they're sending in their data for different systems so let's say if you are managing surgeries you have a certain kind of software that collects the data Mm -hmm. for surgeries it's not the same software that collects data for radiology appointments everybody kind of has their own different hospitals have their own for the same kind of so the granularity is different or the dimensions inside the data are different or both everything Mm -hmm. is different uh kind of they, they often the same kinds of data just isn't collected. There are fee, even if it's the same, just two different hospitals that are operating the same system for the same area, such as surgeries. The kind of the setup of how the data is collected might be different. There might be fields that are that have to be filled out in one hospital but don't have to be filled out in the other, or they have different mm-hmm. names. So surgeries were called different things in every hospital. Um, and all of that data was then collected in a central data location, but not a database. Mm-hmm. And the location is re- it was really just a physical location with all of the computers lined up next to each other that were maintained by the different mm-hmm. vendors, the data supports, such as Siemens, SAP, and those kind of companies that are doing that kind of work. So we realized that the data really isn't in the IT hands, IT's hands for a lot of these systems that we needed. It was actually with the vendors. So we kind of switch over strategy and we say, let's go and talk to different vendors and see if they can give us the data. So go upstream, good idea. Uh, Yeah. Yes. Um, And they, and there we had different success. We, um, some of them were fairly cooperative. They didn't quite understand why they were talking to us since we haven't gotten the signed go-ahead from the central agency because they were still looking for a proof of concept. Um, but they were somewhat cooperative. IT um, was usually there, but not particularly mm-hmm. helpful. Then there were other vendors that were a complete disaster, namely where we actually sent a request for data to them. And we got um, a bill back saying, oh, if you want to look at this data, you just have to pay this much every month. Oh, so they thought you were trying to purchase the data. Yes. And actually what we found out is that even though the data was produced in the hospital and was used by the hospital, if you wanted to have reports from it, the data still belonged to the vendor. That's 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 like um, that's like the bank charging you a fee to get to your your own money, right? That's, that's, <laughs> every time you want to check your account, your account balance, you have to pay. Oh my gosh, this is the business to be in. <laughs> and that's what we thought. Like, oh my god, who signed these contracts? Who was smart enough to give these people these contracts? And and do you just? 
coming back on that, do you think these were contracts that were signed ages ago and someone just didn't realize that that was indeed the case? Like you said in the beginning, there's that, um, you know, if you're going to use it for storage, you don't really care as much about reporting and sure ad hoc expense for reporting. But if you're going to use it for analysis, then it's a whole different animal on, on getting the data back and actually using it. That is the best example I can think of when talking about infrastructure that was meant for remembrance and not analysis. Mm -hmm. If somebody looked at this and said, well, we can get our best value if we just store our data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They didn't think about what we would be able to do in the future with that data and what kind of insights they were kind of missing out on. You've got the IT like your central IT company, do you think it would have been easier if they had been a stronger partner in reaching out to the vendors? Would would this have helped you at all? Or was it simply a, a red herring to kind of deal with them because, you know, they didn't actually own the data in the first place? I feel like a lot of things would have been a lot easier if IT would have been a stronger partner. Mm. Um, just with finding out faster where the issues lie. It was always a, a guessing game on where a new problem was going to pop up. And if IT would have been a stronger partner, I think we could have moved along faster. Even though a lot of the same problems would have still subsisted, it would have at least come out a lot quicker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was it the fact that you had to basically dig into that department and discover what was available instead of someone basically saying, here's the menu, here's what we have? Yeah, that, that's it exactly. Is that um, just the process and the work of digging took up a lot of time and could have been made a lot easier if we would have had more cooperation. Are you talking about weeks or months? How long? I'm talking about months. Wow. That's a lot of back and forth. Okay, so you're yeah. talking to the vendors. You've got data from different machines. Um, what happened then? Um, so we're making progress there. We're kind of figuring out what kind of data is available, what isn't, and we're restructuring what we want to do. Um, what's interesting to note is that that's at the same time as people are getting ready for GDPR. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. And um, we're talking about very sensitive data here, so it was extremely relevant to us. Sure. Patient data, always sensitive. Yes. Um, and also displaying patient data. So we had to make sure it was aggregated correctly. And um, we, of course, weren't allowed to touch a lot of it initially. Um, we were allowed to touch it at that point, but we wouldn't be later on. So we had to make sure that all the processes were set up correctly. And this is where we kind of changed our approach again. And it seemed to be that the real business case here was to create a functional central database and all the necessary pipelines to be um, in accordance with GDPR and that it would actually be functional. Wow. So, so basically a modern database. Yes. Um, something that could be used for analysis. That makes sense. And, and I, I mean, it's back to what you said at the beginning. You have to have the data landed in such a way that it's ready for analysis. So how did you, how did you do that? Um, so at this point, this is when we actually sell our first dashboard project. 
Oh my gosh. And how many months is this into from a point where the executives were like, yay, we want this? Six, seven. <gasps> it was, it took, I told you it took months to dig all of this out. Yeah. And this is the first dashboard got sold. And suddenly, um, in the meeting we were sold and we were talking about different dashboards, suddenly the next kind of bomb hits. Oh God. Namely, the head of IT says, oh, we have all of this. And they're talking about the same KPIs that we invented, that the same KPI data processes that we used, <gasps> and the same visualizations that we've presented to the um, management in order to sell this. This is all stuff they didn't have prior when we started this, but now six or months later, suddenly they seem to have all of this. Oh, no. So all of a sudden, IT, who wasn't your partner, all of a sudden is like, you know, A2 Brute, <laughs> suddenly, you know, turns around and, and pulls out the knife. Oh, my gosh. Uh, they would backtrack on this really quickly, though, because uh, this is not just one project that we're working on there. There's lots of projects that we're working on with that hospital organizations. So future cooperation and a good kind of environment is really important. And it also kind of enabled my boss to kind of put his fist on and said, no, this is our intellectual property. You do not get to just take it after we presented it to you in goodwill. And that did make him backtrack, but it was a very uncomfortable week. Oh my God. So, so your boss, did, did he have like a, a private discussion with the lead of IT or was this more of a public meeting? This was a public meeting. Um, this was a public meeting and intellectual property and lawyers were discussed out in the open. It was a rather ugly thing to be at. Wow. So it was like, lawyer up, baby. Here we come. This is our stuff. It was, we, this is our stuff and we're ready to go the distance for it because we've worked for seven months for it. Wow. And then what happened? And that kind of worked. <laughs> now, do you think if they, if you, if you hadn't been successful, if you hadn't had the resources to basically, you know, bring the team and say, hey, this is really our IP, if they had tried to execute it, do you think they would have been successful just following the template of what you laid out? I actually don't think so. Mm -hmm. I, think they, I think they kind of saw what we showed them and didn't necessarily know all the work that was behind it. Mm -hmm. And not saying that it wouldn't have been possible for them to do it. I don't think they could have done it with their own technology that they insisted on using. But they would have had a lot harder time than to just um, pay us. It would have mm -hmm. taken a lot more work to try to replicate everything than to just pay us through what we already did. Well, and, and this is kind of the idea of data flow and, and the dynamic nature of the data is it's, it's not like you just present it at one point in time and, yeah, that might get you part of the way, but it's the landing and the cleaning and the processing and then okay. is that KPI still valid? There's a lot of dynamic yes. management, I think, that is overlooked when someone tries to rip off your project. Oh, yeah. From then on, things kind of smoothed out because uh, in the next meeting, we actually sold two more other dashboards, which we're working on currently. So we're currently working on three of them, not five, but I'm happy with it. It's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, we're also kind of getting really moving on that central database. Data quality is starting to heighten. They're starting to report more data that we need, that we want. Uh, data hygiene and the entire decentralization of the reporting is still an issue, but I feel a lot more positive about being able to tackle it. Admittedly, there were times during the project when I was just like, I'm, I'm just waiting for my boss to call it off. I'm mm. still doing the work, but I'm just expecting next week there, for there to be a, oh, okay, this is not going to work. But it never happened. We kept pushing, and it, it paid off in the end. Wow. So do you think it's a little bit like, you know, like you're trying to get some critical momentum going and, you know, IT is essentially becoming a bit of a of a hill and you're pushing this visualization boulder forward and, you know, it's harder and harder and harder, but eventually you surmount that hill and you start getting critical mass. Uh, I unfortunately don't think it's like that. I think it's the same kind of tough grind throughout. Ah, okay. So there's really there's no top of the hill. <laughs> no, it's it's um, it was actually a, a pretty f- interesting conversation when we sat down with one of the people that bought one of the dashboards, and he said, "You guys do know there's going to be some pushback from a lot of people. This is not going to be easy. Projects aren't easy here." And it was one of our more senior people who had been at that organization for good five years, and he said. I don't even know what an easy project is supposed to be anymore. Hmm. Like, I'm, I don't know how a project works that doesn't get this kind of pushback. I'm so used to this point. So don't worry about it. So it's really just consistent persistence and grit to just keep after it. Uh, you know, did you find yourself just saying the same things over and over? Or did you find yourself coming in with new twists on the same um, objective in order to get that, you know, in order to keep or maintain that that persistence? I feel like we switched our attitude um, about two, three times. And uh, we went from, oh, we're just going to, we're going to have a database, we're just going to show them the data real quick, to, oh, we need to figure out where the data even comes from. To oh, we need to buy us. We need to build a central database that they can then use in the future. These kind of different approaches really did work, and I, I think that had a lot to do with the moderate success of the project. All right, so let's say that you know I don't want this kind of implementation disaster to happen to my company. I really want to be able to get into the data and surface it more quickly and easily. What can I take away from this story? What what should I learn from your experience? Um, there's a lot of lessons I learned during that year. Um, one of the most important ones, I think, is just that two things really brought us a positive output at the end. First, it was just our blind devotion to the cause. We were willing to put in the work. We were willing to just go that extra mile to show that this was something worthwhile. The other side was just the feedback from the management, the actual people that wanted it, that requested it. They loved it. So we were pushing and they were pulling. And this kind of ongoing dedication really kept kept us um, in, on the playing field for that really elongated amount of time. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I, I guess the logical question here, too, and I probably should have asked this earlier, if management is pulling, why weren't they able to pull IT in line? I think it was a very precarious time in that organization where management wanted things, but they weren't necessarily always willing to stick out their neck for it. IT, if you couldn't completely guarantee the success of a project, people just wanted more and more proof of concept. Uh. They, of course, didn't have to really help us that much while we were still just doing proof of concept. When, when you say people wanted more and more proof of concept in order to reduce risk, is, is there a tipping point to that where you know, you're happy to give more proof of concept uh, because you know at some point it'll all click, or is it more of a delaying tactic on their side where they can't quite figure out whether they want to take that risk or not? I feel as though that both of those are true. Is I, it, a certain amount of proof of concept is always necessary, but I think at a lot of points of our kind of journey, we actually had a proof of concept. We knew this was going to work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they really just in the end, it sometimes seemed like they just wanted to have the finished product already in front of them. I see. They didn't want to have any kind of risk in the implementation. They wanted to have, they wanted basically to already, for it to already be there when they buy it. Got it. Okay, what else did you learn? Um, I learned that it's always important when dealing with IT to put, to run things up the ladder really fast. Meaning we've called the top management over the littlest things with IT. Is that because, right? Yes, because just getting a passport, password for a minor account would become a two, three-week ordeal with IT. So instead of delaying the project by a month, it, it was my, uh, we would just annoy basically the CEO a hundred times and call him and keep calling him till we finally got what we needed. Wow. So so you were willing to go that distance to to reach out to the CEO and be the squeaky wheel in order to get it done, mostly because yeah. they probably had your back and, and they said they wanted it and, and yet you you weren't willing to make an excuse. You were willing to go back again and again and again and say, I need it, I need it, I need it, I'm stuck. You know, help me, help me, help me. Thinking about it was also risk management in a way. Mm-hmm. Is that since we would always report everything directly to management, we would kind of take away the responsibility from us. It was almost a game as in who has the responsibility to do something at this moment. And we had to be really good at pushing that away from us because we already had so much on our back. Uh. So it, are you saying that there's a tendency to load the responsibility on the vendor? It's like 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 a game of hot potato. It's yeah. not mine, not mine. It's the vendor's fault. No. Yes. Uh, that's that's some pretty heavy political strategy. Oh. <laughs> that definitely works. What else occurred to you when you were, you know, thinking through what made this work? Coming back to the proof of concept. Um, in the end, it worked out for us, but I feel like a lot of smaller players that maybe didn't have that ongoing engagement would have kind of been um, lost, would have lost 
if they had given as much as we did. I'm not sure I understand. Can you elaborate? Um, at that moment in the meeting, when we basically came in and they said, well, we we can do everything you can do, I feel like if there wasn't a working relationship with upper management, um, that project would have just gone away. Uh, so basically, having the air cover from upper management was critical to getting the project completed. Yes. And And was that something that developed over time, or did you feel like you had that from the get-go? Oh, I, I had that from the get-go because I came in the project and there were people that have been working with the organization for five, six years already. Oh, okay. Okay, so this was kind of embedded in the relationship between mm-hmm. companies. Yes, it was definitely embedded in it and it was definitely one of the the sore topics on the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Do you think if you hadn't had uh, that deeper relationship, would you have been as successful? Absolutely not. I think that was crucial that kind of like the social relationship with upper management made all of this happen. You know, and and I just want to emphasize that because I have heard this before and it's definitely an underestimated element. Anytime somebody looks at a data visualization project or any kind of analytics project, the people who are most successful oftentimes are incredibly politically savvy across the organization. And I don't mean that in a, um, you know, in, in a manipulative fashion. I mean that in a friendship fashion. They are very much reaching out, creating ties, asking how they can help to other parts of the organization. And, and they are incredibly well-respected. Uh, they're almost like the internal influencers when they, be, when they take on that mantle of, uh, let me help you. If you give me this, I can give you that. And I think that's what drives a lot of the dramatic successes that I've seen. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear this came from your company too, because it is such a crucial element. Yeah, I, it's, um, you know, I've studied mathematics and statistics and I studied a lot of numbers. Um, I'm fortunate to have also played a lot of team sport. So I'm already used to all of this socialization and all of that political pressure. But I feel like if I had just done the normal computer science STEM background without uh, a lot of work in groups and in teams, I would have been overwhelmed at a lot of points. Uh, uh-huh. And you definitely need a thick skin and you need to be able to socialize. I in love order that. With data science. Yes. Yes. So, so basically, you're bringing the playing field into the boardroom. Yes. Any other insights you want to share? Um, so the last insight I want to talk about would be about having clear leadership. If you don't have good leadership in your company, a lot of temporary solutions crop up. And those temporary solutions usually are just that. They're temporary because when leadership changes, these kind of solutions change as well. And you end up with legacy infrastructure that you don't really like. And at that company, for example, they did have a head of statistics. But he didn't do a lot with statistics because it was a legacy role that he he kind of just tacked on to this person that had other things to do as well. And it didn't produce a very good result. So 
being able to clearly define leadership and responsibilities is crucial when working in an organization, and it will, you could definitely see it at that project. Was there an opportunity to take that person who was in charge of statistics and add on to their responsibilities, or were they really just not interested? They were not interested. I see. I see. So whereas in some organizations, you might have had somebody step up and say, hey, I'm willing to be the chief data officer, chief analytics officer, or I'm willing to help broker this across the organization with you. you. You didn't have that. You had to build that for yourselves. But I think in other successful organizations, they've had that internal leader step up. But but still, the problem of is that leader solving for something short-term or solving for something long-term uh, remains the, the learning here. And, and what you just said is they really need to think long-term. Now, I don't actually want to blame any of the individuals of the organizations for any of this. I feel like they were, we were all kind of just in a situation with the organization that wasn't ideal. Mm -hmm. The organization was under a lot of pressure um, because of a lot of turnovers. There was no clear leadership and anybody who would want to stick their head out, if they failed, they would be immediately um, gone. Mm. So don't particularly blame anybody for the position that they took in all of this. It was just, we had to do this thing. They had to do this other thing. And it worked really well when both of our interests aligned. But when they didn't, it was just difficult for both of us. So would it be fair to say that when you have a culture that's not, that doesn't reward risk-taking or a lack of a risk-taking culture, that it has a severe dampening effect on your ability to create amazing visualizations that drive the organization forward? Yes. I think that if you have a culture that encourages people to go out of their way and go the extra mile, you can get a lot of things done a lot faster than if you have a culture that kind of punishes, punishes failure. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's the other half of it. It's in order for your your organization to take risks, you need to be accepting of failures. That is the truth. And that is, I think, the most difficult thing that companies have to wrestle with. It's not easy to... Um, it's not easy to accept failure, especially when you're under pressure and you're always looking to justify uh, every failure as something that was on the path to success and you don't want to have to talk about um, missteps. I, I think that's, that's a valid point and for many organizations, a real economic driver. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Felix, this has been a a really fascinating conversation. I'm going to summarize for us in a minute, but if people want to get in touch with you, is there a way that they can reach out and, you know, get more details or try to understand more about what they should do? Can they, can they get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. It's just my name, Felix Schildorfer. Um, It's Felix, F-E-L-I-X, and Schilderfer is S-C-H-I-L-D-O-R-F-E-R. And um, also my email address is felix.schilderfer at firstretail.com. 
Fantastic, fantastic. So now let's summarize a little bit and we'll see how much I captured of this that and you can feel free to correct me if I've missed something. But when we talk about why should I care about the seeds of a visual date of disaster, what I like that you said in this section is that the idea of the data that came in as storage data uh, was the legacy systems were originally designed to remember that you had certain sets of data but not to execute them for insights and today everyone wants those insights but the data structure has to be built with that goal in mind and that has to do with flexibility with data governance with speed with a whole lot of factors that drive analytics and hence visualization uh, so I thought that was a really interesting point and it can be surprising to people how much work goes into displaying those really valuable insights and then we went on to the example that you that you talked through, and this was such a great story. I, I love the so many different layers to this story, and there are so many things I hear in in common from various other pieces, but I don't think I've ever heard somebody put it together in exactly this kind of um, this kind of one two three everything hit the mark kind of strategy. Not not necessarily strategy, but like every um, challenge that you ran into is one that I oftentimes hear in different directions. So what I thought was really cool in this example was the way that you created fake data to get that management team on board to really love it, to get them to give you air cover. So you had to really express the vision and, and, and also know that that vision was possible. And then you're ready to go, but you run smack into the IT wall, but you don't give up. And so even though IT is not willing to give you a menu of what's available inside the system, you, uh, you don't stop. You express a lot of grit and persistence and you know going upstream to the sources of the data and looking for different ways to cleanse it or bring it together. It, it's almost like you really take the company into your heart and work so hard to bring forth what they can do with their own data. I thought that was really admirable. Yeah, it was um, it was a lot of work, but definitely rewarding when things actually did work. Okay. And the th I think I just want to come back to it. the thing that really kept us going was the positive feedback from the end user. I'm a huge defender that that's really important. I don't want to say all that matters, but it is really important for when you pursue a project that you know that the product you're putting out is actually worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And that they plan to use it. It's not that you're creating something and casting it into a hole. You're responding to a real desired need and you're not letting the lack of data stop you. You're pushing to get the pieces together so the organization can make great decisions. We, we really wanted to change people's lives here because it was a healthcare organization. We were going to actually impact how people get treated mm. and how people um, and help people's standard of living not only the people that had to work on work in the hospital and help other people also the people that are being helped so it was a good pause all over mm-hmm and and have you seen them you know today with the organization 
you said there were a couple dashboards that came out. How are they doing today with getting that momentum of driving by those decisions of using the information that you've worked so hard to put together? This is going to be a longer process because just because we have data and we kind of man- help them visualize it doesn't mean that they've actually had the chance to take the proper steps to act on it yet. I feel like this is the next step in how to use data visualizations is now they at least know wh- what to do. And I think that has already changed a lot of things in where they now know what are a problem childs, what are kind of surgeries that are high risk, what can we do in order to have more efficient cleaning in this and this hospital? And the first step has been taken here, meaning that they know where the issues lie. Mm-hmm. How to exactly solve them is another step in this ongoing process, but I've definitely seen that step being taken. Uh, Well, you know, and I think that's reasonable. You work hard to get the data together, but the culture of using the data is a secondary piece that, again, you don't let go. It's just part of the process of moving the organization along. But what a rewarding process. Yes, absolutely. Good. Well, Felix, thank you so much. Uh, As always, links to everything that we discuss are at ambitiondata.com podcast. And Felix, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I I love the story that you've told and the, the direction that you've given us in terms of the fact that, hey, it really can get done. You really can get through this and, you know, stay the course and, and go the distance. Oh, thanks a lot. It was great being here. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. This is not magic, as Felix has shown us. It is just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.